0: Well, it really, uh, I know this is a bit of a platitude, but I actually mean it. This is such a, a, a privilege, a pleasure, an honor to be preaching um, to you here today. And not just because there's this amazing air conditioning event that is blowing air. I, I've heard about this, and now I'm experiencing it, and it it's incredible. Uh, but because this, this place represents a message and a ministry uh, which, in a lot of ways, saved my life. Um, that I don't, I'm not sure that I would be in ministry. I'm not sure that I would still be a Christian if it weren't for the message that has been boldly proclaimed from this uh, pulpit for quite a while um, now. And I'm going to talk a little bit, perhaps, about that tomorrow. Uh, but today, uh, the title of my sermon is The Idol of happiness, the idol of happiness. And I want to begin by reading a passage from Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. Here's what he says. We do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So once again, the title is the idol of happiness. And I got to admit, even as I say that, I, I feel myself wanting to backpedal a little bit because it just sounds so doubt, doesn't it? sounds so puritanical. And in case you don't know what a Puritan is, it is a person who is uh, worried that someone somewhere might be having a good time. Uh, and, and that's, that's not, that's not me. You know, even though I come from Connecticut, which was settled by Puritans, and I had this little pet theory actually. And if I ever, uh, you know, have the time, I'd love to look into this. I have this theory that the reason that the church is so kind of dead in New England right now is because after 300 years of puritanical dourness they were just like no we're done we're out but all that being said that's not me and before I begin I I do want to say that if you are happy if your life is going well and you find yourself happy in this present moment then praise God that is a wonderful and amazing thing and that of course Jesus liked to have a good time You know, as we know from the wedding in Cana of Galilee, when he made, you know, 200 gallons of Chateau Lafitte at a point when he should have said, take some Advil and have a glass of water and go home. He made more wine. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so if you're happy, I rejoice with you because happiness is a wonderful thing. And yet... The goodness of happiness is precisely why it is such a strong candidate for idolatry. Um, As the noted preacher Tim Keller, an author I should say, Tim Keller once noted, an idol is created when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. It's created when we take a good thing and make it into the only thing. So what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say that uh, happiness has become an idol in in our culture? Well, allow me a few examples. This first one comes from uh, the Opinionator section of the New York Times Magazine from a couple years ago. The author begins, uh, as soon as an American baby is born, its parents enter into an implicit contractual obligation to answer any question about their hopes for their tiny offspring's future with the words, I don't care as long as he's happy. The mental suffix at Harvard must remain unspoken. Happiness in America has become the overachiever's ultimate trophy, a vicious trump card. It outranks professional achievement and social success, family, friendship, and even love. Its invocation can deftly minimize others' achievements. Well, I suppose she has the perfect job and a gorgeous husband, but is she really happy? And takes the shine off of our own achievements. This obsessive-driven, relentless pursuit is a characteristically American struggle. The exhausting daily application of the Declaration of Independence. And of course, by that, uh, the author is invoking Thomas Jefferson's words that we have these inalienable, you know, undeniable rights as people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that, pis- that, that passage from The Opinionator, it, it hits close to home for me because I have two boys. And, and my wife, and I say all the time, is all we want is, is for them to be happy. And at the same time, we want them to be wealthy and successful and to, to affirm our incredibly you know, astute parenting. Or consider uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. Some of you may be familiar with her. She wrote a, a New York Times bestseller a few years ago called Nickled and Dimed. Uh, when she took jobs in all sorts of minimum wage-paying positions to see if it was possible to survive on minimum wage in this culture. Uh, but in 2000, she contracted breast cancer. And in a search for a little bit of, of comfort and camaraderie, some community, she went to an online support group for people with cancer. And on uh, on that page, she told the truth about what she was going through emotionally, her her anger her confusion, her her pain, her fear. And do you know what happened to her in that online cancer support group? She got ripped to shreds. How dare you tell the truth? How dare you be negative? How dare you be depressing? How dare you drag yourself down and us with you? How dare you not be happy? Now, when someone with a deathly illness isn't allowed to be sad, there might be a problem. You, know, you ever heard the phrase, uh, too blessed to be stressed? Ever heard that? You know, we, we propagate this myth in our Christian cultures. And, and Barbara Ehrenreich, who's not a Christian, went on to write a book in which she, she talked a little bit about sort of some of the effects of Christianity misinterpreted. The book is called Bright-Sided, how the relentless promotion of positive thinking has undermined America third example. When I was in seminary, a professor of mine, uh, Leander Harding, gave a homily in which he made a fairly striking statement, made the following observations about idols. Here's what he said. He said, idols always demand blood, and they usually demand the blood of children. That's a heavy thing to say, but I think Actually, that is exactly what we are seeing in America today because I don't know if you're aware of it, but we are in the midst, and this is a little bit heavy for a Thursday afternoon, but it's Lent after all, so I'm going to go there. Uh, We're in the midst of a suicide epidemic. From 1999 uh, through 2010, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the number of suicides in America rose 31%. 31% in 10 years years and actually across the developing world suicide is now the leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 49 but it's not just children among middle-aged uh, middle-class white men it's gone up 50 percent from 99 to 2010 among middle-aged white women 60 percent and as I stand here this afternoon and, and look out at it, you, might, my guess is that a number of you have been personally touched in your families or with your friends by this tragedy. And of course, all of this flows from the explosion of uh, mental illness in our culture, anxiety, depression, which is a, uh, an affliction that has, has uh, well, it's afflicted younger and younger people as the years have gone on. You know, there was one, uh, I was reading articles about this, there was one psychologist who used to say that the average age of people who he treated for depression was like 28, 29, and recently it's been more like 15 or 16. And maybe you've seen that with your children or with your uh, children's friends. I know that I've definitely seen that in our congregation in Houston. So what does all of this have to do with happiness? I've been talking about the idol of happiness and where can we find some hope? I think that anxiety, depression, suicide are born and sustained in the gap between what we are told life is supposed to be and what life actually is. How we're told we are supposed to feel and how we actually feel. And the really difficult thing is that the more successful we become, both individually and collectively, the bigger that distance becomes. The more prosperous we become, the louder the idle screams that we ought to be happy. We must be happy. When we have a nice house and a nice car, a nice spouse and decent children, when we're living the American dream and we have bowed to the idol of happiness, it becomes all the more painful when we discover that we're actually miserable. You know, now are we not only unhappy because we're unhappy, but we feel guilty, we feel less than, we feel there must be some sort of fatal flaw with us when everything in the world seems to be fine, everyone else seems to be fine, and we just don't seem to be able to get our act together. You know, put simply, the pressure to be happy is making us miserable. And that's why the most suicides don't actually occur in the deep dark of winter. You know, February, I lived in New York for 10 years and we bought a therapy lamp finally because February was just too much to take. You're living in this apartment, there are no windows, it's it's not light till 9 o'clock, it gets dark at 3 p.m. But that's not when most suicides happen. When they happen is in the spring and summer, when the weather is good outside and suddenly there's no reason why you shouldn't feel fine, and everyone else seems to be feeling fine, even though we know that's not true. You know, we Americans are very good at putting up, putting up fronts. So what is the solution to all of this? Well, from a Christian perspective, and I don't want to be reductionistic because there are chemical issues involved, but from a Christian perspective, I just want to deliver three truths today. Number one, life is hard. Let me say it again, life is hard and no one is exempted. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how successful you are, how successful your children are, how much you think. No one is exempted from this reality that life is hard. And as hard as we try to, to create um, a utopia for ourselves, and as 21st century reasonably uh, you know, successful Americans in Birmingham or Houston or New York or wherever, we're doing a pretty good job. But still, life is hard. Number two, God is with us he is with us and number three this is not the end and that is what Paul is saying to us in that passage I read from his second letter to the church at Corinth that number one life is hard what does he say our outer nature is wasting away you ever feel like that you know I'm starting to get to the age where I'm just not recovering from things as quickly as I used to in my 20s like your body's breaking down on you that we live in earthly tents. I love this image of a tent. He means our bodies, which are being destroyed. They're falling apart. They're decaying. He says in these tents, we groan. We long for something more, something better. And looking at our Lord and Savior, you no, know, even Jesus wept. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus wept. Jesus was so anxious in the Garden of Gethsemane that he, he sweat drops of blood. The prophet Isaiah called him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, and going back to Paul, if we get a little further in 2 Corinthians, he, he catalogs his, his sufferings, his defeats. He talks about this thorn in the flesh that he has, that he wishes that God would take, it, take away. And when I hear all of that, which, you know, is a little depressing, at the same time, I think to myself, what a relief. You mean I don't have to be happy all the time? I can tell the truth about how I actually feel, what is actually going on. You know, Paul told the truth. Jesus told the truth. I can tell the truth. It's a relief. I can lay down that burden of needing to have it all together all the time, being happy all the time. Number two, Paul says that God is... With us. In this passage, he says he's with us in life, he's with us in death, he's with us in joy and sorrow, in victory and defeat. We are not alone. God is with us, and he has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And lastly, the third thing that this is not our true home. This earth, these bodies are not our eternal houses, they're just tents. And of course you may know that Paul was a tent maker. He left his job as a Pharisee to be a wandering preacher. And the way that he sustained himself was by making tents. And I can imagine him being out in the middle of some wilderness in this tent he'd constructed and and feeling the vulnerability. I love this image of of tent living. And because this is not the, the end, this is not all there is, we don't need to succumb to the lie of the idol of happiness that this is it, that this is our one shot and we better make the most of it because that's not true. You know YOLO? You guys know what that means? You only live once? That's a lie and it will kill you. Okay, i got about two minutes for one final story and then I'll be done. Last summer, my wife and I and our two boys uh, did a two-and-a-half-week, 5,000-mile uh, road trip uh, through the Rockies. We camped for 10 straight nights during those two weeks because my wife is a saint. Um, she actually grew up camping, so she, she loves it as well, but still, 10 nights is a lot. And we stayed in some wonderful places, saw some beautiful things. We were in Glacier and Yellowstone and the Tetons and Colorado. Uh, and it was exciting and beautiful. Fun and we loved it, but it was also cold at times and wet and miserable. And my wife and I, you know, kind of got into it on more than one occasion, probably as a result of lack of sleep and general stress. And there was nothing as good as getting home to our own houses, to our own beds. And what I want to finish by saying is that that is life that we are just camping life is camping it's exciting it's hard it's joyful it's miserable and it's going to fall apart and it's all going to end but when it does we are going to leave these earthly tents behind and we will go home to our true home We will take up residence in, as Paul says, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that truth may or may not make us exceedingly happy in the moment, but it does give us some measure of hope and peace, and perhaps even a little bit of godly joy. Amen.